This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Those are the types of misconceptions or misunderstandings that could exist in your own design team, like your consulting team, maybe your architect, I don't know. And so when they're going to lay things out or provide advice to you, they're basing that on some, maybe some missing information or some bad information. This week on the show, things you should know before building a new brewery. My name is Andy Hooper, and I'm the director of business development for Barnum Mechanical in Northern California. Hello, I'm Jordan Schiss, a project manager with Barnum Mechanical for North America. Listeners can't see it, but I'm looking at a Gantt chart from your recent District Northern Cal presentation. I'm a big fan of Gantt charts because they help pushy, impatient people understand why something can't just be done faster. The Gantt chart in your presentation is an example brewery construction timeline. You show more than a year of planning before any actual construction begins. Talk about all the things that need to happen before someone can break ground or start demo and why that takes so long. Absolutely. Um, so the first thing that I want to point out about these, you know, these figures that, of course, no one can see, but if you're, if you're looking at them and, you, as you pointed out, planning is such a long part of it, the numbers and the dates are fake, but the, the point is to illustrate that planning often is and should be the longest piece of project development because you have to tee everything up to succeed so that you aren't, um, you know, racking up this, you know, heavy cost and having all these consultants and contractors and, and whatnot, uh, do your, your homework for you. So the point of that was to illustrate that the concept development and some of the initial design work, which is being done by you, the brewer, um, doesn't necessarily need to involve all the project stakeholders that you might normally see. You should really be sitting down and and doing a lot of that preconception stuff on your own. Talk about some of the trade-offs of the various project delivery method strategies. 
So the, the traditional sort of approach to uh, uh, project delivery um, is that you do a design proportion, and then after design is complete, that group of people or that team may not also be the people that then go to build the project. So uh, the traditional method of project delivery is a design group, including the customer, comes up with a concept, a full design, and then a contractor is involved. They send the design out to subcontractors and installers and whatnot, and they come back with a price. The owner can select you know, lowest bid or maybe not lowest bid for that matter, and then move on with construction. And the the reason why that is traditionally you know held to be the the case is because um of that bidding process it, it it ensures that you know the customer or at least theoretically ensures that the customer is getting the lowest price to build their project but that's actually somewhat problematic that's why we bring up uh design build which is another project delivery method where uh, in my presentation, I refer to it as build the plane in the air. Um, customers may think that by going with lowest bidder, they can save some money. But actually, if you uh, select some contractors and designers up front who you vetted and you know they're going to do a good job, you can bring them on so that they are designing and building uh, with overlap. So that actually some of the building and construction is taking place while design is being finished. Um, and so the thought there with a design build or a progressive design build approach is that you are shaving down the total overall time that it takes to get your project online, which of course is saving you uh, money in the end. Cool. And, uh, and what's, the, what, how, what's the name of that first uh, method, the traditional um, bid process? Well, I know I've heard the term design build before, but what do you call the, uh, the old way of doing it? Design bid build. Okay. All right. And, and are there any... Also, yeah, go ahead. Um, so actually, I wanted to, because uh, Jordan and I were talking about this before we, we hopped on this uh, podcast, we were talking about uh, a third option called construction manager at risk. And um, I think I want to throw that one over to, to Jordan since he had some thoughts on it. That one I've definitely never heard of. So construction manager at risk would be when the owner is not 100% involved, they have their um, design ideas and they're going to give it out to a construction manager or an owner's rep. So the owner's rep is who's going to control all of the specialty trades and control budgets and all changes. So the construction manager or the rep, um, he is going to, any changes that come up, He's going to receive them and present to the owner. This construction manager at risk is kind of a, a risky situation where if there's other stakeholders involved at the company, they may show up to the job site mid-construction and, and um, be confused why certain things are going in areas because of the low involvement. Um, this um, method is, um, is the least... Um, I don't know what you'd like to say, Andy, on that, on the, the method here, but it's least desired because um, the owner has no say until things have already happened most of the time. It's too late um, on that. Right. Right. I mean, I would also say it's not all that common, which was, uh, it's not really surprising when, John, when you say that you haven't heard of it before, because <clears throat> it's typically done in situations where an owner doesn't have full operational knowledge of, of, 
you know, the process, they're kind of an investor. Um, so like in venture capital or something, they, they may say, Hey, I want this, this type of a process or this type of a, um, facility to be generated. And they put really high level guidance, um, and sort of, uh, advice about, what they want the project to look like and how much they want to spend. And then they pass it off to a construction manager group or property development group, and they have very low input. And it's also uh, typically done on a um, guaranteed maximum price. So GMP. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the difficulty there is that if there's ever changes that come up, um, you know, you're as a, as a builder, one of the people involved in building the project, you have this uh, labyrinth of people, you know, these, um, uh, folks that are involved in decision making that you have to work through in order to get a final decision. And that can, again, add time and then change orders and things like that become even more difficult. But the the point of this, um, this discussion about the three different project delivery methods um, isn't exhaustive. There's actually tons of them. And really what I was trying to communicate in talking about project delivery methods was to just sort of illustrate the fact that there are numerous ways that you as a, as a brewer, the person who's building the project can interact with uh, the stakeholders who are going to be building your project. If you want to work directly with a, a, a contractor or a subcontractor, you can. You can design whatever stakeholder hierarchy that you want because that's the way it should work. Um, that way you get what you want. You have more direct input and involvement um, and so you, you're not necessarily, you know, withheld um, and told that you have to stay within, say, design, bid, build framework or design, build framework. You can do whatever you want. But I think it sounds like, you know, that's probably something that's pretty important for someone to think about and understand as they start a project, because, um, you know, there's going to be certain contractors that only want to work one way or another. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, just from a standpoint of navigating up the complexity of a project, like you better at least have an idea of sort of what framework you're in. So you know how, know what to expect, right? Exactly. And I'd also point this out, um, that the thing that is important to a, a contractor uh, is very broad. I mean, they have core and shell, so to speak. So there's the building, there's, you know, landscape, they got tons of things going on. And, um, they're pretty distracted. Uh, you as the, the brewer, the, you know, the client, you're focused on process and quality and of course your budget. Um, and so it's important to engage, uh, on the design of the, the actual manufacturing, the process, the brewing packaging, all that needs to go ahead of the rest of the design. There is, there's no world that I can imagine where a lighting plan or a landscape plan should somehow trickle down and dictate how your beer is made. It should be the, you know, the process first and everything else built around it. Yeah. I texted Vinny at Russian river to ask him how your presentation was and whether or not it would make for a good podcast, because I figured he would have been there since Russian river hosted the last district Northern Cal meeting. And here's how he responded. Quote, ha funny. You should ask Andy is standing right here. Yeah, it was a great presentation, both for expansion and greenfield construction. He also made a great white paper I can send you, end quote. I've got that white paper pulled up in front of me. And while we're obviously not going to cover the entire thing, let's talk about a few of the areas I highlighted. For starters, talk about the team that's needed when doing an expansion project or building a new facility. 
Sure. Well, it's important to point out the reason why this white paper came up uh, in the first place is that, you know, Barnum builds a lot of, you know, food beverage plants, but breweries are, I think, the staff favorite. I think that's probably pretty safe <laughs> to say. Um, but what's uh, a little bit um, uh, interesting, I guess, is that not everyone that comes to us has a good concept of what a process engineering firm is and does and how we can help. So um, the white paper was actually preceded by a questionnaire. So a questionnaire came first. I wrote up this questionnaire of all these different uh, sort of thought points, these thinking points that you as a, as a brewer might want to take into consideration up front before you engage a process firm or a contractor or an architect or any of those folks. Uh, so the idea was to think, how is it possible that maybe, uh, you know, my growth and expansion plan might affect the way that the design goes or, you know, maybe future activities, um, you know, what kind of a sustainability ethos, if any, are we going to try to tackle? Are there maybe any weird uh, contamination, allergen con concerns? What are the neighbors like, um, you know, around the brewery that maybe we have to follow certain rules? So the idea was, you know, put this questionnaire in front of our brewery clients that we get um, with some regularity and get them to think about all this stuff before we, you know, march forward with a, with a design that ends up, you know, becoming problematic. Cool. All right. Um, talk more about that team though. So, um, you know, one of the things I, 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 I called out in your papers, you said, um, I thought it was interesting. You said, you said each stakeholder in your project has different perspectives and goals and they each speak a unique language. Talk about that. Yeah, really uh, my recommendation when, you know, you're the, you're the brewer and you're building a project is you have your internal team. And then you have your external consulting team. So there's kind of two. And within your own team, there are people who, you know, um, should have some input or may have some uh, input, whether you like it or not, on uh, what kind of a, an array of products you're going to make, how much of it, all that. So, you know, my recommendation, nice to have a point of contact or a, a person who's driving the project and managing it. Um, but, you know, your facility... Uh, does other things than just produce beer. It also has to be a safe and efficient working environment. It has to, you know, generate, you know, profit. Um, it has to be maintainable and sustainable long term. Uh, so your intercompany team should have people that uh, there should be somebody who's representing, say, finance, um, even if that's not the owner or the, you know, it's another individual. Finance should be represented. Operations should be represented. Somebody who's responsible for maintaining the plant uh, should all be represented. And, you know, sales marketing should be represented. For small projects, that may be one person who wears all those hats. For larger projects, you know, it could be a pretty pretty large team. Then the, uh, the external team is typically made up of an architect, a general contractor, a process design firm, um, and then all the various subcontractors and maybe legal consultants, alcohol beverage compliance folks. Uh, so it's it's a pretty pretty broad team, and I still feel that a the, you know a single point of contact, the brewer or you know operations person should be at the head of that. So Andy, when you when you're talking about the internal team, um, how important is input from the utilities management side versus process? Do you have to get they may not necessarily be a stakeholder, but how important is it to have your utilities team, your process team, 
and packaging team talking, is there conflicts that you might see um, in the design that you might need input from? Yeah, it's 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 ironic because sometimes on uh, especially larger projects within the same organization, the left hand may not be talking to the right, um, and I think that's come up before. So it's funny you you, you bring that up um, because if you don't have comprehensive representation from the from the brewery, there might be somebody from you know from the brewery who uh, forgets or doesn't understand that um, you know, there's another division or another group of people that uh, have different timelines, objectives, concerns, whatever. Um, so getting the intercompany team uh, to be cohesive and communicate amongst each other is, is really important. What advice do you have for someone who hasn't selected their location yet? Yeah, um, location is obviously extremely important. Um, and in, in vetting locations, there's there's so many different things. but um, you, you know, uh, can you receive goods and materials easily? And there's some kind of funny anecdotes. I'm sure Jordan's got a few here, but if I think about like, you know, when I was building, uh, you know, seismic brewing in 2016, 17, uh, we had a location where you, you can't, there's no pull through for trucks um, to, to deliver, you know, or to pick up beer and, and to deliver other things. Um, so the site was selected because of, you know, cost availability the location you know for for all these other things but one of the you know more major considerations which is getting the beer out of the facility um you know was was not ideal um there's other things too there's zoning there's ordinances that you uh that you have to be aware of um and all of those uh are you know reviewed by a, a by a city or a regulatory authority so you can't get into a position where you you know um, start a project and then realize that it's not allowed downstream. So that's nice. Um, but you may, uh, you really want to look at growth. Um, and if you have a, a, a property that you are interested in and it is hamstrung cause it's blocked in on all sides. Um, well, that should, should tell you pretty immediately that you want to consider that in your design. You're, you're never going to take that location beyond a certain like volume threshold okay, well, if that's the case, you know, plan on success just in case, just in case you're wildly successful. What are you going to do when you fill that uh, capacity all the way up? And uh, and now what? Are you going to go build another facility and sell the old one? Are you going to, you know, maybe uh, try to move to contract brewing to fill the gap for a period of time? Um, so spatial constraints are really important. So the main thing too is you're trying to sell beer, but what are you doing with the waste? Um, that's a big thing that a lot of breweries don't consider is there's a big ordinance in city and local and state of the waste product from making the beer. And are you going to be able to send that to the wastewater plant or are you going to have to have your own wastewater facility on site? So that's a big determination on location as well. So this is why I love Jordan because he, you know, there's a perfect segue and I should have been, I honestly should have been the one to bring that up because wastewater is kind of like the, you know, my cross to bear or has been in the past, but you're exactly right. Um, there's, there's breweries, uh, the ones nearby us here in Northern California who started out in a location uh, with really limited access to uh, municipal treatment or sewer. And then that became 
like a really big pain point for them. They weren't able to grow or had to relocate or had to invest in really expensive wastewater treatment because uh, they, there was just no other, there's no means uh, of treating the, the massive amount of flow and uh, COD load that can, that can come out of a brewery. Uh, so that's huge. And then utilities as well, you know, um, you know, is there uh, an adequate pressure and, and supply of either natural gas or propane or, or whatever else in extreme cases, like um, I think Alaskan brewing, I was, I was reading that they, you know, were taking spent grain and burning it um, as a, as a heat source, which is pretty extreme, but um, those are all things to take into consideration with the uh, site location before committing to it. Are there additional or different considerations if you're, if you're renting the space? Absolutely. Um, there can be, uh, there's pro con there, right? Um, in terms of cash flow, not having to purchase a, a property immediately, uh, is a, is a large benefit. Um, but then there are some things to be concerned with there with, um, you know, arranging, a coming to an agreement with the, the landlord on who is going to, how are you going to share the cost of these tenant improvements? And, um, well, I think what we see with some regularity is that a, a tenant brewer who's building in a space, they have some things they're not allowed to do that the landlord, uh, doesn't want them to do. So wall penetrations, roof penetrations, things like that. They, um, you know, they'll, maybe um not understand what brewing entails and so they'll bring in a you know a brewery client and maybe sign a five-year commercial lease or whatever else and then be surprised and push back when the brewer says well you know i need all my vent stacks to go through your roof or maybe the building is historical or there's you know reinforced masonry and they don't want you drilling holes in the walls for um, pipe anchorage and all those kind of things um, by getting your process installer your process engineering firm kind of engaged up front you um you might even, you know, avoid some of that stuff. Um, so, a, a, you know, a process firm could help you um, vet a location as well. You know, oddly enough, Andy, the the piping and the brewing process, while it looks great to us and we like how it looks, not everyone in the world likes how piping on the outside of buildings are, vent stacks, and that kind of thing. So, when we envision a, a new brewery with a customer we're designing something and we'll put the vent stacks out the roof and it, it looks great to us. The landlord might come in and say, Hey, um, we don't like the visual of this. You need a second option. And that second option might add a lot of costs to your brewery where you need fans or other ways to vent out the, the kettle stacks and Lauderton, et cetera, to, to make your brewery work correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Or actually that, that reminds me about uh, like misconceptions about beer from either uh, a landlord or people within the stakeholders group. Um, it's possible that they don't understand the brewing process um, and they may have uh, misconceptions about what it entails. Uh, I mean, we've run into all kinds of stuff like, you know, oh, your brewery, you, you, you guys are going to have some tank full of alcohol that you blend into, uh, into some flavors, um, like it's soda or something like that. Uh, or they may think, you know, oh, you guys, uh, you know, you work around really hazardous, you know, dangerous chemicals, which is, I guess, partially true. But, but their idea of what goes on inside of a brewery may um, either be missing information or have misleading information. And that could potentially impact design. You know, they may say, uh, well, we assume you're a, like all the wineries we've built before. So you guys, you know, you don't need coated floors or slopes or you know maybe you have a 
external crush pads. That actually happened to me early in my career. It was about more than 10 years ago. I had a um, uh, an inspector show up uh, at the brewery I was working at at the time and said, you know, you guys are in violation because you haven't disclosed to us uh, your stormwater permit for all your exterior crush pads. <laughs> and I said, what in the world are you talking about? External crush pads? He's like, yeah, well, you know, wineries like you uh, have these crush pads where, you know, grapes are pressed. And I'm like, buddy, you're standing at a brewery right now. He had no idea. He had no idea that there was a difference. Wine, beer, in his mind, these are just alcoholic beverages. Maybe he doesn't partake, so he just doesn't understand. Those are the types of misconceptions or misunderstandings that could exist in your own design team, like your consulting team, maybe your architect. I don't know. Um, And so when they're going to lay things out or provide advice to you, they're basing that on some, maybe some missing information or some bad information. Coming up. That's a force multiplier. And there's not only, you know, maintenance and cost and staffing potential benefits, there's a quality argument too. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Brought to you by CanCraft. We all know how important first impressions are, so put your best can forward by partnering with CanCraft. Offering a full-service packaging experience, CanCraft's design and aluminum specialists are here to support your business from concept through to delivery of ready-to-fill beverage cans. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash cancraft to learn how cancraft can help realize your brand potential. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from Brew Monitor, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Would you like to increase yield and tank turns without compromising quality? Are you tired of high DO and temperature pickup, as well as high power consumption from your old centrifuge? Founded in 1878, Alpha Laval is the original centrifugal separator innovator. Alpha Laval's unique and innovative bottom-fed fully hermetic separators are the most gentle way to centrifuge your beer and maintain its desired flavor and aroma profile. With a strong legacy in brewery applications, they have the technology and expertise to help you improve efficiency and yield without compromising quality. Learn more at alphalaval.us slash MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis meets at the Old Herald Brewery and Distillery in Collinsville, January 13th and 14th. 
District Milwaukee meets at Delta Beer Lab in Madison, January 19th. Don't miss the Barley Lipids Impact on Brewing Process and Beer Quality webinar, January 24th. The 2023 District Ontario Conference at the Pillar and Post Inn begins January 25th. District Mid-South meets at Hutton & Smith Brewing Company in Chattanooga, January 28th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Blackstack Brewing, February 23rd. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Your white paper understandably asks a lot of questions about product mix. Talk a little bit about that as well as what to do when a brewer just doesn't have those answers or isn't confident they can even tell you what their flagship beer might be next year. Yeah, and that's... um that is the typical response uh, from people when you say, well, what's, you know, what's your product mix and how much are you going to make? They go, I don't know. Um, and that's fair. But the point of that question isn't to get a direct analytical response, you know, this percentage of this beer and this percentage of that. The point of that question is to sort of elicit some thought about the possibilities. Um, like if we don't bring up uh, alternative products, say, um, Folks might not think, "Hey, someday I might have to, uh, you know, produce uh, different different products to stay relevant." And that's what we've seen, you know, in in the last, well, frankly, you know, ten or so years of craft brewing is that you have to keep moving. Movement is life. You have to keep pivoting. You know, whether it's changing up the types of beers you make, or in order to prevent compression from other competing types of drinks, you have to start making them too. So, you know, brewers are making ciders and seltzers and non-alks and, you know, cannabis-based drinks and all kinds of stuff. Uh, So the point of that question is to spur a little bit of thought, like, hey, would you ever consider maybe, um, you know, doing kombuchas? Are you going to ever package coffee? for somebody? Um, Are you going to launch a line of uh, seltzers or are you maybe going to be doing uh, spirits production within the same space? Uh, All those answers really direct what kind of equipment, how it's laid out, support utilities. um, All that stuff is really important to to have that conversation up front so that you enable yourself to be as nimble as possible in the future. Andy, with with these... um different products that a brewery might be producing what do we need to look at um you know packaging possibly storage but what's the the major items that we need to look at for future planning even if the brewery doesn't know what they're going to make yeah so let's think of some examples like um in the the example of spirits right the the obvious one there is if you're going to be doing um you know, any dealkalization maybe in the plant and you have a, a, a flow of, of spirits, which are above the threshold required for, you know, an NFPA, you know, flammable, maybe you have to start considering things like cl- class one, division one um, areas, so sensitive areas in the plant where you can't have 
you know, panels or electrical elements that are exposed, um, you know, you, you want to take that into consideration up front. Um, or maybe, uh, you know, you're packaging things which... Uh, this is a pretty common one that happens in breweries. They, they want to do both uh, clean beers, so to speak, or conventional beers, and they also want to do sours some point in the future. Um, you might want to consider, you know, segregating equipment and even having hard partitions. So it's like separate buildings or walls or whatever, so that uh, you are lowering the risk of contamination between those. Um, or if there's packaging equipment, perhaps, that needs to be dedicated to something which has certain varieties of yeast or bacteria or heavy flavors that if you're packaging coffee or flavored drinks for RTD cocktails, um, you might need to leave some room for that uh, dedicated packaging equipment to be located in part of a building where it doesn't impact the rest of your production. Talk about the importance of mapping out your process flow. I've been in too many breweries where that was clearly never done, or maybe the owner came in after the fact and decided a tank should be moved for purely aesthetic purposes. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, uh, I I use the analogy of like a the popcorn kernel design model, which I, I do not do. You have a you have an entire building to work in. Say you know, um, do not group elements of your process flow too closely together so let's say you segregate it into you know four processes or something you've got you know work production or your brew house you've got your your cellar um, operation you've got filtration you've got packaging so just those those elements don't group the equipment that are responsible for those elements of operations too closely together because you leave no room for growth, right? And that's where you end up in a situation uh, where people are cutting holes in the ceiling and they're dropping tanks in the parking lot and stuff. Um, so spread it out to the extreme corners of your your building it off if at all possible. And and part of like really analyzing that is this you know process flow mapping. So sit down as elementary or stupid as it might seem, uh, you know, draw a little uh, you know process flow diagram, a little PFD, and have a little bubble for grain handling and then a little, you know, bubbling, a bubble for your brew house, work production, um, any other things that you deem, uh, you deem to be uh, discrete operations within your brewing process. And then realize that each one of those independently may have to grow or expand as you brew more beer. So, um, you know, are you leaving adequate room or thinking about what happens when you need to add a malt silo, for example? Or, you know, maybe your, your brew house is uh, currently four vessels and it's locked in on all sides. Well, you just sort of prevented yourself from adding maybe a fifth vessel, a wort receiver, a second kettle, a second whirlpool, whatever. Um, so think about, you know, your, your process flow and try to lay things out in a, like a clean line when possible and leave room in between individual steps in the process. And I think what I see missed a lot is kind of it's basic stuff like, you know, okay, is the, is the finished goods cooler on the wrong side of the building is, are, you know, are, are my, am I moving pallets of malt, you know, some enormous distance for no reason or, you know, uh, creating a, a dangerous situation by them, you know, as sure you're maybe you just think, oh, I'm only doing that once a week now. But then when you're doing it several times a day, uh, after you've grown, it's a different story. No, those are great examples. Another one would be, you know, like, so you mentioned forklift traffic. Um, are you creating a situation where the folks trying to take 
packaged goods that have just been filled and put them inside a cold box, for example, uh, are they running back and forth in front of people who are trying to move pallets of raw materials or trying to fill trucks? Um, and then also, is your piping plan going to have to get really complicated or maybe complicated to the point where you can't have piping anymore and you have to start running hoses everywhere because you need to connect tanks that are, at, you know, they're in weird locations um, or it becomes too difficult because of your, you know, the way you've arranged your tanks to, uh, to attach them cleanly to headers and things like that. Um, all that adds to, well, ultimately, you know, time and money downstream trying to make it all work from a process perspective. I like to, I like to add that utilities is a process as well. You know, we don't want our boilers or chillers too far away. You know, if, if we're setting up a boiler room, we got to consider we need steam to clean the keg racker. If our packaging hall is too far from the brew house, what's, what's the impacts on the budget and the install to running a steam line clear out there. And, and same with glycol, you know, you want your chiller to be set up centrally so you can go to your cellar, you can go to your BBTs and possibly even your cold boxes to save money as well. So I like to consider utilities as part of the process. We, we consider them process utilities. I want to just call out a few of the questions in your white paper and, and let you talk about the implications of the answers. Um, so, so here's one. I'll go. Uh, do you intend to produce short batches which are smaller than the rated capacity? Ooh, that's a good one. Number of reasons why that's important up front. Um, one is uh, brew house design itself. Um, if you have an internal calandria, for example, or you have side steam jackets or bottom steam jackets or whatever the you know the heat source is for your brew house, um, it gives you a lot more uh, agility if you are able to produce um, fractional batches, so half batch, whatever else. Um, but if you can't say, you know, you, you have to fill that work kettle or, or louder ton or, or mash ton or whatever it is, it has to be filled to a real specific volume. You, you may lose the ability to, you know, to do some things um, down the line. Uh, another example would be um, your fermenters. Um, when, when folks are building a brewery, there, there's a lot of uh, occasion that you can have some input on the design of the fermenters unless you're buying them used or whatever. Um, and so you may want to consider, hey, is there ever going to be a chance that I would put, um, say, 20 barrels in this um, you know, 100-barrel tank? I don't know why you would, but maybe you really need to do that for some reason, propagation or whatnot. Um, you want to have the ability to look at the zone control of the chilling and where the uh, temperature uh, is being measured and how many locations it's being measured, because maybe that could really be of use to you in the future to be able to brew, say, a half batch or a quarter batch or something. Um, and it doesn't cost anything up front to you know, ask a, a tank manufacturer or your process designer to just move things to make you a little bit more agile down the road. Yeah. And if you do have you know four different zones, maybe don't tie them all together and maybe add some extra valves in there so you have some options. Right. Um, okay, here's another. Is there a firm shift schedule such as two to four shifts, no weekends, et cetera? I bet that's something people don't think a lot about when they're getting started. Yeah, and it is always nice to, uh, you know, as, as a brewery 
you know, owner, designer, whatever else, think about the the people who are going to be, you know, making the beer. And if you've come up through the ranks and you've actually, you know, you've been a brewer, you've been there, it's a little easier to, to, to stand in those shoes. But um, staffing have, can be... I have graduated from working the 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. brew house shift at Old Dominion Brewing Company in the early 2000s. So oh, I, yeah. I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And people have families and things and, you know, you want them to be able to... Uh, you know, not have to work graveyards and, and nights if at all possible. Um, and so some, you know, considerations there, um, is your, is your brew house or your process able to, you know, operate, um, without having constant attention. And this kind of ties into automation a little bit. If you know, you're going to be in an area where staffing is a, you know, is a concern, um, Maybe discussing some automation up front or maybe sizing the capacity of certain systems a little bit larger alleviates that future concern over staff. So if you can size a brew house a little bit bigger or a centrifuge a little bit bigger up front or automate them in a way where you don't need three people standing and monitoring them constantly, you know, that can really make life easier for the operators. Um you know, happier operators, higher quality, more morale, and also, you know, lower cost of uh, op- operational cost of having, you know, a whole bunch of people at a lower uh, compensation rate and, you know, and, and technical knowledge have fewer people, um, but they're, you know, they're operating at maybe a little bit of a higher level. Yeah. And there might even be insurance implications too. You know, I, mean, I, I know of a, a local brewery that um, after years of operating around the clock, you know, made the decision to, they, they figured out a way to, to do it all, um, you know, without the overnight shift. And it's, um, you know, I think there's been some, some very positive things that have come out of that. And Ma- shift maintenance overlap. As well, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Maintenance as well on, on all your equipment. You know, if you're working 24 seven, when can you maintain your equipment and and usually maintenance comes when least expected and it can affect your your production schedule absolutely okay uh here's another one that you just kind of alluded to a little bit is there a need for remote monitoring alarm escalation or data collection and visualization now i would say that you know what we just talked about if you want to have if you don't want to have someone there 24 hours a day you know that stuff is all mandatory in my opinion and, oh, and it's getting, luckily yeah. it's getting cheaper all the time, right? I mean, there's more and more, you know, internet of things and, you know, creative ways to, to do some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, automation uh, is a absolute game changer and we're living in a, in a time now, just these last, I don't know, call it maybe 10 years or so where the cost and availability of, of automation has gotten to the point where it's attainable for those folks that are at a, you know, microbrewery or even nanobrewery scale. Um, you can have things set up where you'll receive push notifications, emails, text messages, letting you know that there's either been a fault or, or, you know, a reminder that something is about to happen. And that's a force multiplier. Um, And there's not only, you know, maintenance and cost and staffing potential benefits. There's a quality argument too. You know, um, the repeatability and and the quality that you can attain in, in your beer by having a a high, high level of automation is, is really great. Um, and then, you know, if you're the person who's responsible for, for maintaining things, um, having a, like a data historian or having some, some information flow up from the machines that can tell you like bottle counts or can counts on your packaging or number of hours that a, you know, an air compressor has run in between intermediate service. Um, it can make you, it can give you reminders for, for PMs, for, 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 for preventive maintenance. 
Um, there's all kinds of benefits to it, you know, or the ability to reduce your staffing by, you know, not having to, you know, have somebody drive all the way in or commute or whatever, show up on site to, you know, just look at a couple of tank temperatures, you know, that operator can, you know, remote in from somewhere, check it briefly, make sure that everything is fine and, um, and really reduce the, uh, the time it takes to, to check on things. One of the things you said in the paper was, uh, this is a quote, it was, imagine what you might want to automate tomorrow. Um, talk about that. Well, so there's some opportunities. Um, if you, you know, one example is uh, butterfly valves um, can often be, uh, you know, supplied with a, a manual handle on them. And then in the future, you can remove that manual ha- handle and you can install an actuator of some kind. Um, maybe not the case with uh, with other types of valves, right? Like needle valves and things like that are a little bit more difficult to automate. But if you think that at some point in the future, if, if automation is going to enter your budget or it's going to become relevant to you, think about ways up front where you can have a process be manual for now until you grow into you know your your eventual plan of of adding some higher level automation some supervisory stuff so uh an example might be you know if you have a a a project a greenfield even and you have the ability to dictate what type of automation or controls are coming with your equipment try to standardize it as much as possible all to a single vendor if possible that way downstream when you add a thing like a uh you know, a, a high level networking, like a switch or a, a factory floor network, um, you can more easily integrate all those machines together to provide you data so that you can do supervisory control and data acquisition. Um, another example would be, you know, laying out uh, tanks or piping uh, in a way that, you know, for now, maybe it's it's flow panels and hoses and an operator has to kind of shuffle some things around to get it to happen. But maybe in the future, if you leave room in your flow panel for little sensors to mount, then eventually those sensors can be used to tell an automation system if an operator has in fact connected all of the components correctly. Um, so that you know if they accidentally connect a process incorrectly and try to run the process, your automation can look at it and go, ooh, the operator accidentally connected to CIP when they meant to connect product and um, put fail-safes in place. Yeah, cool. Um, You kind of mentioned this earlier, but here's one for which I've seen some epic fails. Quote, planning is essential to an efficient and well-designed steam and condensate return system and can dramatically reduce fuel and water costs. Talk about that. I mean, because, you know, you mentioned the example of, you know, you don't want to, you know, run piping and, and condensate return some, you know, a long distance or whatever. But I've seen a lot of installations where, you know, there just wasn't, uh, this wasn't an area of expertise for the for the contractor that was selected. And so, you know, you end up with a system that's just not put together right. Oh, yeah. It's, I'm, I'm sure this, uh, this drives Jordan nuts too, but it, it it makes me crazy. I walk into a plant and see steam lines and condensate lines, which are uninsulated or condensate, which is being dumped and not returned back to the boiler. Um, I mean, maybe people just don't look that closely to their, you know, their energy bills for fuel and electricity and everything. But, you know, you're, you're not only dumping water when you, uh, you don't return condensate back to the boiler, but you're dumping chemicals, heat and labor too. Um, 
So, you know, water, I get into a diatribe about this and I promise I won't, but, you know, briefly, in most places, water is so incredibly cheap. You might be paying like a few dollars per thousand gallons. Um, but before it can go into a boiler, you have to either soften it or put it through reverse osmosis, cha-ching. Um, you know, you need to heat it up, temper it. Maybe there's oxygen scavenger, scavengers, phosphonates, um, and then pump it all over creation and get it to different parts of your brewery just to dump it in the drain. That's ludicrous. I mean, get that into a well-designed condensate return system. And uh, it increases the health of your boiler too. So all that should be considered in, in your layout as well. Also, if you're going to be running 24 hours a day on your boiler or, or 12 hours a day, the, the equipment selection is vastly different if you're going to shut your boiler off every night and the steam traps you're going to size and select versus your boiler running throughout the night in a maintenance type mode um, as well. That's a good point. Um, okay, guys, what's the most wasted utility in the U.S.? <laughs> Compressed air. Without a doubt, compressed air. Yeah, um, I wish I could. Uh, I wish I could cite you the uh, Department of Energy uh, study on that. But um, yeah, so so much uh, electricity goes into generating and compressing air, and you can walk into plants, you know, breweries or any food plant for that matter, um, in between shifts or at night or when things are shut down, and you can just hear sure all the hissing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's just. Um, I mean, it's a very expensive. Um, motor gas it's a really expensive utility just to uh, let it leak out everywhere so design and maintenance of air systems is really important yeah we've got a good episode i can't remember the, the number off the top of my head but uh with uh, i think it was the folks at bells did a study on that and they went around and um, got some leak detection equipment and did the roi on all that stuff it's pretty cool um so uh okay let's talk about chillers um chillers are often the largest consumer of electricity they're super expensive mission critical you need to design and size it to handle load fluctuations future expansion worst case weather scenarios but without oversizing it talk about threading that needle yeah i I would say oversizing uh is less problematic than all the other things that you had mentioned um the the problem with oversizing i guess comes in form factor and by that, I mean, there are certain amount of footprint uh, that a chiller might occupy and that footprint could, um, you know, could uh, allow a, a pretty wide range of chiller horsepower. Um, so for the same, I don't know, 10 foot by 20 foot place on the ground, um, that could be anything from 20 tons to 60 tons or something. I'm just giving examples, but um you don't want to oversize to the point where you can't fit the thing in your layout. Um, but given the constraints of a certain uh, floor plan and your, your budget, I would err on the side of, uh, you know, of oversizing it a little bit. So maybe an engineering factor, safety factor of, I don't know, 30 to 50% or something. Um, and especially so if you live in a hot climate. With some redundant pumps as well, Andy, you know, Oh yeah. Beer needs to be cold. You know, what's the implications to your brewery if your chiller goes down, if you don't have redundancy engineered into your system, that's a big major item that we don't like to think about. But when your chiller goes down and there's, there's beer in the tanks, the clock's ticking to get that fixed. Um, so redundancy on pumps and, you know, circulation is big on that. 
No, totally. Um, uh, yeah, redundancy in your in your chiller system. So either two chillers or a chiller that has two banks of compressors. So there's you know like uh, compressor staging, so that if a compressor goes down, you just lose a stage uh, of it. You don't lose the entire thing. Um, and maybe also um, two other points here: backup generation. So if you have uh, you know a plan for you know a generator or a, a backup power plan, that can really be important. Um, you know, if uh, uh, if you if you lose power, the the first thing that you're going to potentially lose is active fermentations. Whereas bright beer, you know, you can seal the tanks, and you've got maybe a matter of multiple days. Um, with active fermentations, you you have a matter of you know hours to do something corrective. Um, and uh, the final point on this little pro tip is, if you are designing an automation system to control your cellars, your 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 glycol to chill the tanks. Think about um, talking with your automation engineer, your programmer, whoever, so that if a chiller failure occurs, you can detect the temperature in your header has begun to rise, immediately shut all the glycol supply to your brights. Because again, as I said, they are lower priority to say active fermentation. The brights will be okay. You want to shut off glycol supply so it doesn't keep trying to pump warm glycol and heat up those tanks. But um, if your glycol is, say, at 50 degrees, that's obviously too warm to be of any value to chill a, a cold bright, but it still has value to keep control over a potential runaway fermentation. All that can be managed with your automation. It can look at the temperature of your glycol header and make an evaluation and say that glycol is still good enough to keep a fermentation from running away, but do not send that to the bright row. Yeah. Well, and I'll play devil's advocate on that. I, I've, I've saved plenty of uh, fermentations by still sending it to the bright tank. Hey, let the bright tank uh, act as my chiller for a little bit. And let, you know, it's okay if the bright tank, uh, you know, warms from, from 30 to 40, if uh, that gives me a, a few more hours of keeping a fermenter from getting out of control. Um, You're right. That's a, that's another smart little hack. Um, yeah. It, it all depends on, um, you know, your, your need for packaging immediately. Like if you think you're going to get the problem resolved in say 24 hours, but you need to package again the next day, um, the priority would be to keep that beer, you know, at 30 degrees or something. Yeah. And I think, um, and I think I just want to say is I, I fully agree on the redundancy with, with chillers. I mean, I, I almost always, um, advocate for, a, a, a even the, even a, small unit in a small brewery trying to get a, a dual compressor you know i'll take a dual five com uh over a over a 10 any day um because you know you can let it cycle on and off um you know as it as needed for the uh for the big loads um a lot of them will do lead lag will it will fire up one and the next time it fires up the other so you reduce your hours across you know both of them over time and then uh like you said, just when when one of them inevitably goes down, you're not all the way down. So we would we would apply that same uh, sort of ideology to boilers and air compressors. Redundancy, lead lagging, and staged or modular uh, operation are just excellent themes to have in I mean pretty much any utility system that you can think of. Some of the budget equipment vendors out there will ask brewers to approve PNIDs without producing 3D drawings. I guess first explain what a PNID is for anyone listening who isn't familiar with that term, then talk about when or why a brewery might also need 3D drawings. Absolutely. Um, there's three major types of drawings or diagrams that I think are important. Um, and a PNID um, is 
a, a drawing um, a process and instrumentation diagram is a drawing that is not necessarily to scale. Uh, it is the whole point of it is to identify each key piece of equipment, the piping, pipe size, wall thickness, um, and, and instrumentation that might be connecting everything together. And so it lays out in a way that is uh, easy from a, an engineer's perspective or an operator's perspective. It's easy to see the relationship between all the little systems or subsystems that are in the process. So that's the P and ID. There's also um, an isometric drawing. Um, and that's a that's another thing. It contains elements of things that were in the the P and ID, but an isometric drawing will show kind of how many types of fittings, elbows, and a, in a little bit of three dimensional space, um, how those things are supposed to fit together or be installed. Um, and then the third, you know, is that that three dimensional drawing, um, which really gives you perspective on uh, the dimensional layout uh, of space. The downside of the 3D drawing is that it's really hard to communicate that to say a builder, or it's not going to be available to an operator um, all the time. So each of them has their own sort of respective, um, you know, benefits and, and uses. And wherever possible, we, we like to use all three. And let's remember a, a PNID is a <clears throat> diagram. It necessarily will not show where that valve location will be. So when we say isometrics in 3D, someone can interpret the PNID completely different than another person, depending on who drew it. Um, there may be a valve on that PNID, and you go to look at it, and it's in the other room. Um, it shows location in between equipment, so the installers and the three, 3D model will depict where that goes, and it's easier for stakeholders and ownerships on buildouts to know where that valve is going to be for maintenance and for accessibility for process. That was Andy Hooper and Jordan Schiss here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for links to both the District Northern Cal presentation and the white paper. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.